came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome back, everyone. It's Monday again, and it's time for some Disasters Deconstructed. Hey, Jason. Hey, Ksenia. Uh, how are you doing? I know this is like your first week of semester. Are you surviving? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> just about. I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to survive. So I need some hints and tips from you because you're like halfway through now, aren't you? Yeah, we're almost at midterm in the US. Oh, we started oh. a little bit late as well. Um, just there, taking a bit extra time to try to prepare for, for like reopening. They're still trying to deliver some of our classes on campus so fortunately oh, yeah. for for me we we um are completely online right. so i mean in some ways it's working out really well having having a really good time with the the online students um it's a little bit of a challenge like you know trying to make your courses engaging and interactive is a little bit more challenging when you're not in the same room but yeah. um yeah, I've been grateful for all the amazing advice from other educators online, you know, and mm. especially on Twitter. I just read some some great tips and, and saw some great resources earlier in the year, you know, that were quite yeah. helpful for preparing for the semester. There's been just so much advice online. Mm. Um, we are not fully teaching online, so I do have some in-person sessions. And I've never thought that in my academic career, I will ever have to wear a visor. Um, you've seen the picture of my beautiful visor, uh -huh. haven't you? <laughs> uh, I will never hit my head again, which is, I guess, silver lining of all this. <laughs> they finally found a way to protect you um, from. I know, I know. From like concussions. So anyway, that's helpful. I know, I know. So at least something to <laughs> to look forward to, not hitting my head. But no, I mean it's kind of all okay, you know. And I actually I quite like online teaching in that it gave us much many more opportunities in terms of engaging with people. You know, I can yeah. get some cool guest speakers, but also just learn about technology. For me, it's been quite useful because, well, as you know, I'm quite technically inept, so <laughs> it's definitely been a useful exercise. Well, you've been hard on yourself. But you know, I, I agree, and it's it's been great to be able to invite people from uh, you know around the world into into the mm. classroom by Zoom, and uh, I think it's really rewarding for the students too. And talking of learning and education, well, we're reflecting on this in today's episode. In our previous episode, we spoke to Zenaida Delika Willison about her contribution to community-based disaster risk reduction and her views on disaster risk reduction in general. And today we're going to continue this conversation with Mihir Bhatt, who Zenaida mentioned in her interview 
Mihir is the Managing Director of the All India Disaster Mitigation Institute, and his work focuses on promoting and strengthening the integration of disaster risk mitigation and social development. So welcome to the show, Mihir. We're so glad that you've been able to join us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to this show. I'm very happy, and thanks go to Zenaida as well. Yeah, we had a great conversation with Zenaida last week. Um, and we're we're really excited to continue to explore some of the ideas about um, the importance of communities in leading the way towards risk reduction. So, Mihir, I want to start by um, just talking a little bit about your personal journey, because your experience in disaster risk reduction is quite wide ranging, and your contributions have been recognized internationally. So maybe you could tell us a bit about um, what inspired you to work with people and for people, and to focus on capacities and their importance in reducing risk. Well, you want personal history. You didn't say how personal. Okay. So I'll go very personal. And I'll also be general for your audience. I thought I'll sort of cover four important areas which which uh, shape the journey as it is. That's family and schooling and, of course, the work itself. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the family has sort of helped the internal part of the journey so far, being um, coming from a family where one of my ancestors was very much part of the freedom movement of India and a you know, witness to partition and father involved in the African liberation movement and mother being a trade unionist and uh, my sister speaking six languages inclu- uh, before she left her school um, and aunt being a you know, psychoanalyst. <laughs> so I was very much sort of interested in how people's minds work yeah. and what languages they speak and that was fascinating. Um, the school was very much a connection of Montessori and Rabindranath Tagore's ideas and which uh, gave the space and gave the uh, resources and support and a chance and sometimes hints to grow. And one saw that given a chance, individual or a group, and in our case community, how it does grow into a new role or different role mm. it may have. Um, and at university at MIT, I found that um, it gave a tremendous openness to go and do things with a whole range of communities. And I, for example, was able to actually go and work with a Hispanic and Black uh, shelter for the homeless in Boston um, to uh, witness what was at that time called NIMBY, not in my backyard, movement for and against. So one sort of seen during this formative, you know, family and educational background that what power community has, also what are the limitations our community has. And then in work, when I returned from the U.S. and started working in India, it was a repeat drought, two droughts, one after the other, which are always more severe than a single drought. And one saw how community was actually coping with uh, the impact of that with such grace, but also such ingenuity that one started believing that, yes, community does have some power, in fact, a wide range of power. It's a different kind of power, but that power really helps uh, move ahead and deal with droughts and subsequently floods and you know, earthquakes, tsunami, uh, all these um, more than 14 hazards that one has worked with uh, 
during all these decades and um, also different locations, uh, 12 states in India out of uh, uh, all and uh, 12 and uh, nine countries in Asia Pacific and repeatedly one saw that in the local people, their group and community as a, as a trade union, as a self-help group, as a cooperative, as a not-for-profit company, a whole range of forms it took and was able to actually deal with disaster risk reduction as well as resilience building. Mm -hmm. So that has been the journey and a lot of reconfirming again and again internally as well as in the world that yes, there is a power that people hold and communities one in a very definite way of moving ahead. And we will come back to the power of communities. But first of all, I guess I want to ask you about the research practices um, in disaster studies and also disaster practice. So in our podcast, we've been discussing quite a lot the power, the issue of power relationship in research and practice. And we all know that much of the research is um, driven from the West, right? And a lot of research is Anglophone. And of course, there is a lot of top-down practice. So a lot of what we do is quite technocratic. And communities are very often treated as vulnerable and seen as helpless, right? Which is, of course, not the case. So how did we end up seeing communities as helpless? And can we change this somehow? Yeah. Um, so the way I'd like to address your question is that how we ended up where we are and what is the way ahead. And I think as you speak, there are four or five uh, ideas come quickly to my mind and this is uh, something we just recently for quite a few time have been discussing with the network called Duryogniwaran which is an alternative thinking on disasters sometimes against and, some, and sometimes ahead of the received wisdom that we share and one of the things that we discussed was that um, there is too much of schooling which is going on in our field, disaster, risk reduction, or humanitarian action. Mm -hmm. And the way ahead seems to be learning, active mm -hmm. learning. And I'm making that difference, not to split hair, hair but you know, mm -hmm. quite concretely means so, the difference between that. The other thing we found, that there is a too much effort in institutionalizing anything which has worked. And by institutionalizing, we quickly actually kill it. And what is needed is to actually network what works with other things which are working and go on increasing the number of working things, working activities, working communities, working groups, so that it becomes a larger, wide-scale impact. And that something is not happening. I also find um, that for some reason we are very attracted to structures and uh, you know rightly so you need structures but i think we go even beyond the benefits that they offer and not look at processes and sometimes we can do different processes so that we don't actually need a structure which will monitor which will implement which will plan which will keep accounts so on and so forth so that's sort of you know one more way why 
we are where we are and what we can go ahead from structures to processes. Um, there is also too much focus, perhaps more than needed, on profession of risk reducers, you know, resilience builders, humanitarian actors. And one finds over a period of time that what is needed is focus on the practice. You know, what Don Sean said, the reflective practice, then too much on being a professional. Because when you be a professional, the focus is on the individual and what professional services he or she provides, while practice is something which is ongoing and which, which keeps on building on what you've just finished. So you have expertise and experience and expertise and experience moving on further. There's a personal growth as well as growth of the particular sector within which you are working. And um, I'd also like to mention uh, too much focus on technology these days. And by that, I mean uh, it ne necessarily attracts uh, certain kind of systems, uh, certain corporatization. Yeah. And what we need are tools, more tools which are in people's hand and over which they have control individually or as a family vis-a-vis -vis technology that you have to fit in to actually be able to work. And I think that distinction we've stopped for whatever reason not doing and we end up then having a technology which is uh, sort of central and commanding. Um, mm -hmm. And the last, last perhaps, as we all are facing uh, COVID-19 virus, the pandemic, would be that the focus which was in uh, on health, uh, we've uh, made it so much medical uh, part and so much of Medicare. And I think we need to move ahead to look at well-being as something that we are dealing about and not, you know, testing and ventilators and ICUs and quarantine and so on and so forth. So that's the area which seems we can move ahead from where we are. There is a nice uh, um, conversation I had when I was traveling with Tony Vox, uh, with whom we were doing the DEC, Disaster Emergency Committee, evaluation for tsunami. And, you know, four different countries, all the UN agencies, six different national governments, um, and of course, the international NGOs, all the 14 members of Disaster Emergency Committee. And, the, uh, and the, the concept we coined with, I'd like to leave with your audience, is um, selfish altruist. That we want to be altruist, but we want to be selfish. And we sort of twisted that further while we were driving in Sri Lanka from one camp to another to uh, sort of come up with a phrase which was inhuman humanity <laughs> or a human inhumanity mm. that how we've sort of got into a circle where the main objective itself is defeated by overdoing it or doing it wrongly mm. to do that. Um, similarly, recently there were 5,000 family survey that we were doing in Kerala after 2018 floods and this was with the FXB Center of the Harvard University. And um, one of the group meetings, focus group meetings, the leaders of the self-help group in that community said that there is a need to be taught and told what to do. And more and more, they found that they were moving away 
from doing things on their own to be taught and told and uh, less and less to take initiative to learn on their own <clears throat> but believing that somebody will tell them what they should know about response rehabilitation recovery uh, less and less develop independently or interdependently but or less and less relate to one's own self and to each other and that's what has happened to us but also at the community level more and more as the whole disaster risk reduction exercise humanitarian exercise reaches the last mile that we talk about um yeah so i think learn from uh, uh i was in muluku island in indonesia where I was looking at the uh, risk reduction measures they had taken and um, one of the indonesian uh, local authority person very wisely was telling me as we were go walking back from the community which was affected that um, we need to learn from the calmness that is there between the humanitarian action and learn to uh, learn to listen to the silence that humanitarian action offers and i think that we haven't done enough it comes to all of us as in the form of insight but that we don't do and as a result we end up in the situation where we look at structures and technology and um, uh, uh, institutionalizing too much of schooling so on and so forth i think what you're saying about dependency is really really interesting because most of the projects are kind of aimed at that right that's what gets funded uh, in both research and, and funding but um i suppose when we build this dependency we are also completely neglecting the vernacular skills and vernacular thinking that's already there absolutely absolutely and you know that is that is something so much uh, striking when one sees that one of the first thing a victim of a disaster is made to feel that he has lost mm -hmm. and then the media and then the loss assessment damage assessment but you know these are human beings and they have same brain and hands and heart that we have and what are their thoughts about what they would like to do reserves are need assessment and our program development of course with participation so on and so forth but um, yeah as i said before about my school that you know give the space to grow and to you know if needed very much of course one need to give some hints or some direction here or there but you know people know what they want and how they will go about doing it by and large even in the worst situation and as we know we not reach every person in all disasters so places where we haven't reached uh, people do recover and you'll never see a study which will show that without any humanitarian intervention how did a family or a community or in some cases a whole country recovers never see that literature Yeah, it's it's like invisible and almost by design 
because uh, that doesn't feed into our the Western idea of like helping. You know, if if people are able to recover by themselves, then it, they don't need us, right? We we need to be needed. We want to be needed. <laughs> it is our need to be needed. Yeah, exactly. It is our need to be needed. Yes. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, Mahir, about your work through the All India Disaster Mitigation Institute. So you work closely with communities, of course, but you also engage with other stakeholders. And so I was wondering if you can tell us about how you navigate everybody's interests and agendas, and how do you bring the people actually experiencing risk to the center of the discussion? And you are very kind to believe that we are able to negotiate <laughs> through this. In fact, we have more failings than the road or the, the way we have been able to negotiate. But luckily, if 10 out of 1 is our success rate, we do 100 things. So at yeah. least the successful negotiations are uh, 10 out of that. Um, because it is very difficult where you are you know, firmly committed to a particular group. And in our case, uh, AIDMI, with all said and done, in the end, the last question is that, will it help the poor? Mm -hmm. And that's something that very much is uh, the back of our mind. And, uh, and that doesn't only mean poor, but within poor, will it help the women? Will it help the tribals of our country? Mm -hmm. Will it help the Dalits? Or will it help the casual labor or, for example, minorities and ethnic groups? Yeah. So, so when we negotiate, I think if it is, you know, we think of negotiating through waters. And first thing is that we have a very small uh, boat. We don't have an aircraft carrier mm -hmm. as certain large international NGOs have. We have a small frigate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it can twist and turn very easily. And I think size matters when we want to negotiate too many things in too short a time. So that's one part. If we think of, um, of being on the water, frigate, then I think the water, it's very, very important to listen to the water, what's happening around you, the context, which allows you to negotiate better. Mm -hmm. And um, that's something we found repeatedly very useful and when we have failed we've not listened invariably or listened enough or listened and thought about it we have found you also find that uh, one has to be true to one's own self and that is you know if the captain knows where we are going or if we know where we are going then it is easy to negotiate but when we ourselves be oh shall we if he says well, we'll lose the project, if we do that, we will not be able to finish the project on mm -hmm. time, so on and so forth. So I think true, being true to yourself, it also means um, recognizing that other interests exist mm -hmm. and they have a right to exist, um, even if they are exploitative. One doesn't believe or join them, but you know they have a right to exist and recognize and respect them and then negotiate. Um, with them, how will you move ahead? And last, uh, and again, this is more out of failure than success, but we have learned that um, um, there are ways where you can find out 
that it is not win and lose situation, but if we apply our mind, what is the win-win situation where both sides or many sides win simultaneously? And uh, it's possible to do that. May it be provision of you know, relief immediately after uh, uh, an earthquake in a village where you have stock for 100 households and number of households turn up is 300. Or may it be about you know, where do you build the water pumping station within a settlement, so on and so forth. But if apply the mind, you can always find a way where it's win-win for all. Of course, it is easier said than done, but it's possible. Well, and um, this is something that I want to kind of to explore a little bit more, but in a context of um, a talk that I've heard you were doing in the recent webinar that you've organized with JC Guylard um, in order to tribute uh, Zenaida. And for the audience, we will put the link to the webinar into the show notes. So you said something that really made me think um, from different perspectives about community-based disaster risk reduction. So you've pointed out that whilst community-based disaster risk reduction has really become quite prominent recently and lots of people have been taking it up, right? When disaster actually strikes, the community-based approaches that we all prize get forgotten very, very fast. And instead, response is usually based on command and control. And you have called it um, one of the ironies of community-based disaster risk reduction. And I would really love to hear you talk a little bit more about this ironies and whether we can actually overcome them somehow. Sure. Um, no, that was a, uh, an event that Jessica has very kindly organized to uh, look at the lifelong work that Zenaida has done, mainly about, about and around community-based disasters uh, management. And um, the topic was, of course, uh, community-based disaster management approaches in the COVID-19 pandemic crisis. And we had a very good panel there, uh, Hugo and, of course, Ben and a whole range of people. Um, and I was asked to wrap up. And I've never been somebody who can wrap up things well. I'm very good at unfolding things. In fact, that's more excitement. And so I said, look, I can't wrap up, though, though you asked me to wrap up this whole uh, very exciting thing. What I'll do... I'll wrap up in a, in a way so that it opens up. And I thought I'll, uh, I'll sort of um, wrap it up in a sense. What is it that I really thought was uh, 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 um, at the top of my head and top of my heart at the time? And that turned out to be the irony that, you know, we were talking about community-based disaster management approaches, though the fact remained, as you said, that by that time, not a single national government had taken a community-based approach to responding to COVID in their national plans, if they had one, or not a single UN agency by the time has mentioned about community-based approach uh, to health, to women, livelihood, children, a whole range of that, uh, including migration. Or um, mm -hmm. So it was all very much command and control, and it was a fight against COVID. Um, and the uh, people, workers at the front line, were, were called the front line, you know, sort of it seemed very much a warlike vocabulary which was being used 
And I was wondering that where is this coming from? Because it can't be, in theory, at least coming from the humanitarian sector. I mean, you know, we don't do humanitarian acts to fight something or conquer something, command or control something. And still, I mean, national governments and UN agencies and international NGOs, many of them, not all, and also uh, the humanitarian workers accepted lockdown. You never lock down cities. Cities are where you open up. I mean, not only things and arenas and parks and rivers, but open up your mind to new ideas and new people and new experiences. So exactly opposite was happening in lockdown or social distancing for that matter. And uh, some corrected it by saying it's physical distancing. But the whole thing, what was really needed was coming together, togetherness to protect then to actually distance each other from possible spread of disease. So that was one irony that I thought was very striking to me. The second irony which came out was on health. And as I said before, the health was reduced to medical, basically medical aid. And that is uh, uh, tablets and testing and vaccine will solve everything and in, uh, ventilators, so on and so forth. And to me, it was about you know, self-care, immunity building, you know, good food and air clean, then of course community health, public health, and you needed, of course, I mean, uh, uh, ICUs and you needed um, to have ventilators, but that was the last thing. But for some reason, we all jumped to the last stage. Perhaps there was more money to be invested in those last stages or maybe more money was to be made in those last stages by producing and supplying. Um, I haven't seen a study about COVID capitalism, but if there is such a study, we will see where all this money that national government spent, where did it actually end up? And that would be nice to chase that rupee or dollar or buck for somebody, one of your students perhaps. Mm -hmm. And the third irony was... Um, that we were looking at um, neoliberal economy, which has, of course, given us so much of benefits, but perhaps it has reached a stage where it cannot give benefits any further, but actually harm us, that only an economist can say, but as a humanitarian student or somebody who is looking at it more carefully, I think it is becoming more and more difficult to reap benefits of the neoliberal economics for the humanitarian purpose because there is demand and we are not dealing with demands anymore. It's about aspirations. There is supply and we are not looking at supplies anymore. So you can't have a humanitarian action at a graph of demand and supply where they meet and you put your humanitarian action there. It doesn't work there that way anymore. And you can't you know, turn humanitarian action into a market for humanitarian action and who has the largest market share with UN or international NGOs or so on and so forth. So I think we are sort of seeing the, the limits of the humanitarian action in a neoliberal economics. And interestingly, one of the places where this has worked very well, this means COVID-19 related response is a state in India, Kerala, 
And there they decided to keep aside the regular macroeconomic related allocations, but called that we will work respond to this humanitarian crisis, which they coined the term moral economy, that we will not do what is the demand and supply or trade-off, but we'll do which is morally right to do. And Kerala has done very well in terms of you know, reaching out to people, controlling the spread, the R factor, so on and so forth. So maybe there is a time for humanitarian sector to look at new economic models within which it can fit in or it can actually promote maybe the circular economy. There is this concept of the economy of nurturance, mm -hmm. which is coming out from women workers' experience, and that may be a good thing to good thing to look at. Um, so I think I'd like to um, sort of uh, say that anything which is self, the whole idea of self-relief is nowhere around in the picture. The whole idea of mutual relief or humanitarian action is not around in the picture. In fact, it is looked down upon. It's not even called a humanitarian act. It is, and why is it ignored? You know, there is something called autonomous humanitarian action, which is sovereign by the individual himself or herself. And why it is threatening to us? Um, um, why is it sort of hard? Because it is hard to control if the, auto the actions which are humanitarian autonomous? Is it because it is hard to command? But I don't know, but that whole direction is less and less explored so far and seems we should be looking at it more carefully. Idea of self-relief or self-autonomous humanitarian actions. Thank you so much for this reflection, and I think it's really, you've highlighted so many important issues, and uh, to me, yeah, economy doesn't work in a, in, a, in a way that it doesn't address root causes, um, and we've seen just so much profiteering that, and I guess we will see more profiteering from COVID uh, that I, I don't <laughs> really know where, where to start here. We actually have a working group where we're trying to look at different case studies in different countries at disaster capitalism um, in the context of COVID. And yeah, it looks bleak, as you can imagine. It's a <laughs> depressing story to tell, but um, uh, and a very long one. Well, thank you so much, Mihir. Uh, this has been really, really interesting and we really, really appreciate your time. Fantastic. I think our listeners will really enjoy your reflections. Well, thank you very much, both of you. And my very best wishes to your listeners. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, 
disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Saina, Jason, and this is Mihirbat. Thank you.